Uh, this weekend we are uh, in our second to last week in our series, Breaking Free. It's our, our New Year's focus. Uh, started back in the uh, first weeks after January. I started out uh, by just reflecting on uh, Jesus' words, if uh, the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And how Jesus has come to set us free from sin and guilt and shame. And we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. But I also want to just highlight some of the other stops we've had along the way. For example, in week two, Pastor Randy was talking about lies that we believe. Right? This is what the devil wants to keep us trapped in, lies of comparison. Lies that we're doomed or worthless, that everyone is out to get us or is against us, and that there's no way out. And we talked about how those lies try to keep us in bondage instead of living out the freedom we have in Christ. Uh, week three, we talked about sin's spiral. And if you weren't here, uh, you can go back and, by the way, watch all these on our YouTube channel. All of our sermons and our live stream services are there on demand. But um, uh, you may remember sin's spiral. Uh, he talked about generational sins. Uh, and maybe you're familiar with this. In your family tree, there may be some crooked or some broken branches. There may be some struggles with addiction, with overworking, overeating, over anything, right? There may be struggles with just broken relationships that result from divorce or marital unfaithfulness. And sometimes you see this kind of played out uh, to the second and third generation. And it seems like you're just desperate to escape. Or we also talked about personal spirals. Maybe you've had this experience where uh, you, you're feeling bad about yourself. Maybe you had too many sweets, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you almost seem to want to punish yourself, knowing what you're about to do is less than God's best, but you still do it anyway, and you get stuck in this cycle of shame and regret and rinse and repeat, and it continues. We talked about how God's come to set us free from those cycles. And then in week four, uh, we had temptation's doorstep. And uh, even in the very beginning of Scripture, in uh, the book of Genesis, we're told that sin is kind of crouching, and it's looking to pounce and to attack and desire. That was God's warning to Cain before he killed his brother Abel. And what we talked about is how sometimes temptations are like a door that seems like there's something uh, better on the other side, something that will satisfy, but it's always a trap and it's always a lie. But what also is always true is that Jesus has defeated every temptation that we will ever face. There is no temptation, Scripture says, except for that which is common to all humankind. And Jesus has suffered and been tempted by all and has not sinned and promises also a way out. So that's where we've been so far. Last weekend we had a little pause because we had a special guest, the bishop from Kenya. Today I'm going to talk to you about how the devil seeks to use guilt and shame and regret in particular to keep us trapped in bondage. To do that, I want to take you back to that reading from Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, it begins with this glimpse into the heavenly throne room of God. Isaiah is writing this based on whether it was a vision he had or some kind of direct personal experience. It's not 100% clear, but nonetheless, uh, he is there. And this is what he sees. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then surrounding God on his throne are some angels, and in particular, what are called seraphim. 
Now, just a little quick pause here. Uh, lots of us are pretty interested in angels and their role in life now and in Scripture, and we don't have time to do like a whole message on that, but just real quick, there are a couple different categories. Uh, one is seraphim, another might be cherubs or cherubim. Cherubs are often warrior angels. So for example, when Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden, it's a cherub actually that God posts there with a flaming sword to keep them from going back in, okay? Uh, we also have archangels. Those seem to be those who have higher responsibilities. So you have Michael, you have Gabriel, who's also a messenger. The seraphim, um, we see in a few places in Scripture, and what's interesting is they have six wings. Um, the other angels, if they have wings at all, seem to have two, but the, chera, or the seraphim have six. In this case, we see it from Isaiah's perspective. With these six wings, two they use to cover their face, two covering their feet, and with two the seraphim were flying. And not only were they just there hanging out with God, looking all impressive, with their six wings, but they also had a job to do. We're told that they would sing <clears throat> back and forth constantly to and about God. So here we have it said, one called to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we're told that the, the sound of this song was so powerful that it shook the place. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, I've always loved this particular story for a variety of reasons, one of which was uh, uh, when I was a student pastor as an intern at a church in Colorado, I had this great idea that I was going to reenact this throne room scene. And so uh, for chapel, it had a school kind of like St. Peter, so a bunch of kids, lots of little ones too. And um, so I had like a, a throne that I set up, and I had some cool robes I was going to wear, and this church had a smoke machine, which, uh, so here's what I said, I'm just going to take that smoke machine out, and you know, while we're singing some songs and reading the readings, go ahead and push out this smoke, and it was going to be amazing, except what I didn't anticipate is all that smoke rolling down into the pews, and all the little kids started hacking and wheezing, and making a big scene, and my whole dramatic effect was lost, so you're welcome, no smoke today, right, but just imagine it, okay, right, uh, truly a powerful picture. Uh, it's not the only time this shows up. Actually, if you jump to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 4, we see John also in this throne room environment with many of the same details, right? So uh, Revelation 4 verse 8, and the four living creatures, apparently there are two, now there are four, there's a number of them, each also six wings, right? So we know they're seraphim. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Very similar to uh, what Isaiah saw. Maybe it's like verse 2. Maybe they've got a couple versions of their holy song. But it's not the only song, interestingly, in Revelation that they're singing. Uh, just one chapter later, still in this throne room area, we're told now that the, the elders and the angels and the saints are singing this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. Now, who do you think they're addressing here, speaking to? Maybe you've studied this. Just shout it out. Christ, Jesus, you got it, right? And in what form does he appear in Revelation 4 and 5? A lamb that had been slain, but was living again, right? So they are now adding to what has always been sung, a song of worship and praise for Jesus, the lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. 
They go on to sing this, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Right, there's a new chapter, a new stanza, you might say, to the song, now that Jesus has come and accomplished what he has done for us on the cross. Now, as you think about these two glimpses into the heavenly throne room of God, I want you to ask and just think about this question here. What would it be like for you to stand in the presence of the Almighty God? Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind would be, man, I love music, and I'd want to sing right along with those saints and angels and uh, everyone, and so you just want to join in those great songs of worship. Maybe you know them well, and you've sung songs based on them your whole life. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, uh, I can't really actually sing, so I'm just going to be quiet <laughs> and soak it in, right? Just silence, absorbing the majesty of the moment. Or maybe, like Isaiah, your first reaction is, I don't belong here. I'm going to get to that, Andy. Thank you. Right? Maybe your first thought is, I'm not good enough to be in the presence of God, right? There aren't enough coals, Bill says. We'll get to that too. Here's what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, what Isaiah knew well was that a, a holy God, in fact, a holy, holy, holy God, cannot stand the presence of sin. So great is this holiness that a sinner in his presence would be utterly ruined and destroyed. And so he recognized his own sinfulness. And why Isaiah chose his lips to focus on, I don't know. Maybe he had a problem with saying things he shouldn't say. Maybe using his words to tear down instead of build up. Maybe uh, he had a propensity to just let stuff slip out, uh, taking God's name as vain, unwholesome talk, whatever it was. Uh, he says he's from a people of unclean lips, so maybe it was a, a, a societal problem then as well. Or maybe it just simply anticipated what was to come. I don't know. But the point is pretty clear. Uh, she or he knew that because of this sin, he has a problem in the presence of a holy God. Now, here's the amazing thing. Uh, God, for Isaiah and for us as well, does not want to leave us in that moment of brokenness and guilt. It plays a role to drive us to repentance, but it doesn't leave us there. So look, look at what happens next. Actually, I meant to say this earlier, but why do you think the devil tries to keep you shackled by guilt? We're going to come back to what happens next in a minute, right? The reason he tries to keep you shackled in guilt is because then um, you feel like you never will stand in the presence of God. You'll never deserve his grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness. He seeks to trap you in those regrets about the sins of your past or the repeated patterns of the present. But again, God doesn't want to leave you in that place. So back to Isaiah 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, just like you're talking about, Bill, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. Now again, whenever I come to this passage, I love it, but I cringe at this 
picture of like a burning coal on the face. Anyone else kind of just like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. It's like when you take that first bite of like a fresh hot pizza and you burn the inside of your mouth uh, with the sauce. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah, you got to be careful. And it's, I mean, there's nothing pleasant about being burned. But the point here isn't pain. The point is purification. For the, the coal from this altar have the amazing ability to transform Isaiah and his mouth from words that maybe tore down or disappointed to words that proclaimed life and hope and peace. Um, in Revelation, we see a similar picture, different words, different image. How is it that God makes us clean? How is it he makes us new so we can stand in front of him? By your blood, you ransomed people for God. You rescued them. You brought them back. You stole them back for yourself from every tribe and nation, people and tongue. Here's the thing. God uses the feeling of guilt and remorse over our sin and shame as a means to bring us to our knees before him so that he might lift us up and make us new again. He doesn't leave us in our guilt. He doesn't shackle us with shame. He sets us free from it. So here's the question. What difference would it make if you could actually face every day guilt-free. Think of how that would lift your spirit, how that would raise your sights, how that would fill you with new hope and new courage. You still have the issues that we all have with sin, but you are not defeated by them. You're not held back by them. You have victory over them because your sins have been atoned for. You have been ransomed. And what's amazing is God seems to know us better than we know ourselves and recognizes that we'll need to be reminded of this in all sorts of different ways throughout the rest of our earthly life. And so to close today, I'm going to show you four images with Scripture passages, each of them a declaration of God's love and His mercy, grace, and forgiveness for you. And my hope is that one of these in particular, if something hasn't already, one of these will kind of stick with you today and you can carry it with you. It'll be part of our hero practice later on during upper room time. We're just going to take a moment and reflect on each of these. Here's the first one. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Especially here in Chicago, we know a thing or two about snow. I'm glad we don't have any right now, just FYI. But um, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah 118. Or how about this one from Psalm 103? Um, when you're forgiven, your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Hmm. Never going to meet again. Uh, I love this one too. I had to throw in one from the book of Micah for the obvious reasons, right? <laughs> you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Maybe you've heard actually... Um, the deepest places in the oceans are actually lower than the highest mountains on land. And the picture we get is your sins are all the way down there. Never coming up again. One last one. New Testament. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, 
the new has come. We may not have butterflies yet, but they're coming. Right? God says you are brand new in his sight. Not defined by your, your mistakes, not held back by regrets, not shackled by sin and shame and guilt or anything else. You are in Christ free. Friends, our hope and prayer is that you take one of these with you, carry it with you throughout the rest of the day this week. Uh, maybe one of the images stood out in particular.